0: You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Water conservation is very important to me, and I bet it is to all of you. That's why I have High Sierra Showerheads in my house, and I'm so happy that they're a supporter of this podcast. High Sierra carries the EPA WaterSense label for efficiency and uses 40% less water than conventional low-flow shower heads. The model I have uses just a gallon and a half per minute. And because of their unique nozzle design, it's patented. Nobody else has it. It maximizes efficiency of water and energy and does not compromise on performance. You still get a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. WATERLOOP, WATERLOOP, WATERLOOP. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking today about a topic that I'm really uh, disturbed and upset by, um, and look forward to hearing more about it and about what can be done. Uh, the guest for this episode is Erin Savage. She is Central Appalachian Senior Program Manager for the group Appalachian Voices. Erin, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: absolutely. So, mountaintop mining is uh, is the topic here. I recall when I first really learned about this was in like the early 2000s. Maybe it was 2002, no, that's not true. It was in the late 2000s. It was like 2008, 2009. And uh, someone from your program gave a presentation when I was at a conference. And uh, it was They f- kind of showed flying th- over Google Earth, basically, and flying over the Appalachian Mountains and showing mountaintop after mountaintop uh, removed, just destroyed for the purpose of, of mining and, and coal mining. Um, could you explain what mountaintop removal for coal mining is and how it's done?
1: Sure. Sure. Um- so, mountaintop removal is the common name for large-scale surface mining that's done in central Appalachia. So that's specifically um, Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, and West Virginia. Um, so it's it's all kind of in this particular coalfields area that is um, very mountainous. Mountainous. Um, it's steep terrain, but small mountains, very you know packed together windy rural roads. Um, And so it's really a coal mining technique that was developed um, particular to the area, basically to make it easier and cheaper to get the coal out of the ground.
0: Mm, Okay. And so I guess I'm on the screen here, I'm going to put up a picture of, you know, kind of, I guess, a classic example of mountaintop removal for coal mining. And so people that are watching this can see, like you said, you've got a bunch of mountain ridges, very hilly area, and I mean they've basically blown the top off this mountain. And is that what they do is they use explosives to just and and, and scrape this open.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you can see in this photo, you're looking all of the kind of brown tan area is the mine. And you can see some of the mountains in the background that are taller than the mined areas. And they've literally come in and taken the tops off of this ridgeline in order to expose the coal seam below. It's the cheapest way to do it. Um, As coal seams got thinner, well, I should say, as the only remaining coal seams were more thin because um, underground mining had already mined out a lot of the thicker coal seams, it doesn't make as much sense to send underground miners in because you end up having to remove um, essentially more material than than just the coal in order to even make the, the mine tunnel big enough to put a human being in. So instead they started uh, blowing the tops off mountains. Mm-hmm. And so you can basically think of this mountain as kind of a layer cake, and the coal is thin layers between the thicker layers of rock. Mm. And so what they do is, when they, they blow off the top of the mountain, they end up with a lot of excess material. Um, and that is what you're seeing down in kind of the bottom right corner, really the bottom right and bottom left. And those are, those are valley fills where they've basically pushed the excess material down into the valley below the mountain.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So they they take that material that they've blown off the top, they fill in these little valleys that are coming off, you know, coming off the mountain top, and those that's where streams usually are, right? Those that's that's where a lot of water is going to come down. So they're like, fi- you know, basically filling in streams too. Is that right? Yep.
1: Yep. Basically, water follows gravity. So anywhere you have a valley, you will have some sort of waterway, hmm. depending on how big the watershed is. Uh, you know, it may only be present uh, in wet weather or it may be a permanent stream. Hmm. And they literally bury these headwater streams in um, excess material from the mountaintop.
0: When, when did mountaintop removal start?
1: Oh, um, it it definitely was occurring as early as the 70s, uh, really perhaps earlier. But but mountaintop removal on this large scale that we're looking at in this photo really became much more common uh, in in the 90s and early 2000s.
0: Okay. Yeah, I just – I don't know how – Familiar, you know, the masses are that with this, that, you know, that people really know that this mm-hmm. happens. I, I think probably most people believe coal mining is, you know, you dig a you dig a hole and you go in there underground and get out what you need. I don't, you know, I don't know that people realize um, that this happens and also the extent to which it happens, which is something that really shocks and saddens me, uh, is the extent of mountaintop removal in the Appalachian Mountains. Could you talk about? talk about that. And I think there's also another, uh, I'm going to put up a map here and show people in a minute too.
1: Yeah. And and the map that I shared is um, one that is available through another nonprofit called SkyTruth. And if uh, listeners are interested, it's a a great thing to explore on your own. Um, This map came about from a joint study between Appalachian Voices, Duke University and SkyTruth. We've done a few different partnership studies like that because it turns out there isn't necessarily a a great government resource to determine the extent of mountaintop removal. You have to piece together various uh, data sources. And so um, what they did in this study was use remote sensing um, to identify mine sites uh, and mine sites over the years as well. And so one of the things that they determined from the study was that about 1.5 million acres across the four-state area um, have been surface mines since the 1970s.
0: Hmm. And that's so just to, 1. Mm-hmm. 1. 5 million acres. Yeah, I just want to say that again. It's a yep. hu- huge amount of land.
1: So that's bigger than the state of Delaware, 18% mm-hmm. larger
0: wow oh my gosh um i think i might have also seen somewhere like a number of of mountaintops maybe it was several several hundred four hundred five hundred maybe yeah
1: five hundred uh and and that that is an old figure um but again it's just it's a good way to really uh, make people understand the scope of the problem Uh, that figure hasn't been updated for a while and it can be hard to determine know what a mountaintop is mm. out in central Appalachia versus like a ridge lines we have a lot of ridge lines that all kind of run together you know listeners from the West might think oh I know what a mountain is I can <laughs> identify like Mount Rainier sitting out there by itself in Washington but uh, the central Appalachian landscape looks quite different so um, that was just one tool we used to kind of try to convey the scale Uh, but yeah, the, it, it can be difficult to get exact figures on that sort of thing.
0: Sure. And again, this is, this is Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia, Ohio,
1: no, Tennessee, Tennessee.
0: Sorry. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah, and specifically it's southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky. There is coal mined in western Kentucky and in northern West Virginia, but really it's the coal basin, it's all connected right where the the boundaries of these four states meet. Hmm
0: yeah and i I think when we talked previously i explained that i you know i grew up in in maryland kind of right where the appalachian mountains start and and have spent a lot of time uh hiking and camping and traveling around these mountains and it's just uh it's it's really heartbreaking to to have learned of this and to see the extent uh, of what's happened and um i want to talk about the impacts a little bit uh other you know The ecological impacts what happens when this mountaintop mining occurs
1: sure Um, so the primary ecological impacts are to surface water so rivers and streams um, and the land itself there are other impacts I think we'll get into in a minute that are more kind of human health related and related to the economy but I'll, I'll focus on these first Um, So I already mentioned how surface binding typically creates valley fills. It doesn't always but it it often requires them and they um, they bury streams with the excess material and essentially a way I like to explain this is the the excess material is the natural geology. It, It is what is naturally occurring in the area but it's really being altered by human impact. So you're taking layers of rock that would naturally weather and, and dissolve through through rainfall, through underground water flow and things like that, but we're really speeding that up because we're essentially pulverizing these rock layers with explosives. And then runoff, rainwater mostly, still goes through these areas and the surface area of these materials is so increased that the rate at which various chemicals leach into the water is really increased. Mm. And And so kind of an analogy I like to share is it's sort of like um, grinding coffee. Like if you made your coffee without grinding your beans, if you just ran your water through whole coffee beans, you'll get this very weak kind of coffee-flavored water. But if you grind all those beans up first, you get coffee, which is a good thing. But (laughs) when you're talking about... um, heavy metals and, um, various salts, it's not a good thing, especially for aquatic life.
0: Yeah. So that, that damage to those streams and then the downstream waters is pretty intense, right? Um, and I, I, know one of the other images you, you shared with me is of, you know, acid mine drainage. Um, so I'll throw that up on the screen so people can see, and you can maybe describe what, what's, uh, what that shows.
1: Sure. Um, so the pollutants that come from any particular mine, uh, can they can be site-specific, it depends on the geology. Uh, but what we commonly see is acid mine drainage. Um, and so you end up with water uh, running off the mine that generally has a pH below six. Um, we consider kind of neutral, healthy water to be somewhere between six and nine in central Appalachia on the pH scale. Um, and then the other thing that happens is that water is often orange because of iron that is uh, dissolved by by the runoff, and then that iron can precipitate back out of the runoff, and it essentially attaches to the stream bed and turns turns the stream bed orange. Um, so that's a really common problem. Um, but there there are other problems as well. We do sometimes see water coming off the mines that uh, gets uh, too basic, ends up with a pH above 9. And then we also see issues with um, salts and metals that maybe aren't visible to the human eye, but can be just as problematic, um, if not more so. So other things like um, aluminum, magnesium, or sorry, uh, well, magnesium is a salt, but also manganese Mm. and selenium Um, And these can be uh, detrimental by themselves, but also they kind of work together often to um, increase the conductivity of the water. So basically the the total dissolved solids of the water. Mm. Um, And there's a lot of interplay there that can be uh, even more detrimental to aquatic life.
0: Yeah. And and again, this water, it's not just contained to that stream. We know water flows downhill, right? And and so it's going down and entering larger waterways that that people use um, for fishing or recreation. And, and then and there's other aquatic creatures downstream that, that this stuff hits. And then also when you blast that mountaintop off, you're destroying all that habitat, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just uh, unless or until it's restored and if that's done properly. So. Um, right. And then, you know, talking about the the impacts, you have the human health impacts, you have economic impacts. I was interested to hear a little bit about uh, the economic impacts, negative economic impacts of mountaintop mining.
1: Sure. Um, Economic impacts can be a little harder to identify. um, Just because, you know, we don't you don't really know what the region would be like without mm. coal mining. So the region has been dominated by this single industry for over a 100 years at this point, it, it has really been a mono economy. Um, and now that that the coal industry is really failing, it's just leaving a vacuum. You know, there, there are some areas that are doing better. But you know, it's been a relatively quick change. And there aren't other um, industries to kind of lift up the communities. Mm. So that's the main thing I would point to. Um, The other things that kind of get more to human health and safety, but have an economic toll as well is um, flooding. We Mm. see uh, increased flooding uh, from how the landscape has changed due to mining. Um, The land is less able to literally absorb and handle large rainfall events. Um, so that can damage houses, it can damage roads, uh, and it can endanger people. We also see a lot of health impacts, uh, both to minors and to nearby residents. So there you're talking about like lost productivity and lost work days, um, inability to hold down jobs, and also just the health care costs themselves.
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm also deeply bothered by the the human health impacts and the impacts on these communities. Um, like you said, the people around here have depended on mining for their for their jobs and for kind of the local economy for so long. They're tied to it, right? But then at the mm-hmm. same same time, you have these operations that are poisoning their communities that are putting toxins in the water. Um, I've, I think I even saw some maps and some studies that looked at, you know, rates of cancer and rates of cardiovascular disease and, and other serious illnesses that are exponentially higher um, in, the, in the communities around these types of operations. Is that
1: right? Yeah, there have been well over two dozen studies looking at correlation between various negative health uh, outcomes and proximity to to surface mining. A big criticism that the industry uh, brings is that correlation doesn't necessarily point to causation. Um, But even if it's not a direct cause, (laughs) there's still a problem when your county is dealing with... um, such increased levels of of poverty, of cancer, of heart disease. And beyond that, there have been some more recent studies looking at, um, fine, basically ultra fine particulate matter. So various constituents that make up the dust coming off mines, and they have shown, um, actual causation, at least in laboratory settings, uh, for that, that material coming off surface mines, um, promoting lung cancer.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, you, I I think I've also seen pictures that show a mountaintop mine or rather show a house or a couple houses. And then just right in the background is one of these, these mining operations, you know, that's Mm -hmm. can't can't be too healthy. Um, what, what do, what's the reaction of the people in these communities to that idea that, you know, yes, this economic engine for them is also very detrimental to their health. I mean, that's a tough situation to be in.
1: Yeah. And a lot of my job over the past 10 years or so has involved, um, going to people's houses when they call us about issues like water contamination. So we do see well water contamination, uh, because of contaminated groundwater. Um, and, a lot of those folks, man, they're really torn, Mm. because there just are not other options. Most families that I encounter have family members working at the mines, sometimes even directly at the mine that's likely responsible for damaging their well, um, or creating the dust that falls down on them. So they're really in a tough situation. Um, You know, it, it can be very difficult to To choose to leave, um, to have the resources to leave. I mean, moving is expensive, especially if you and your family have lived in a particular area, especially a rural area for generations. Maybe you own the land that you live on, and that might be a a majority of your wealth. Um, It's a big ask to ask you to just uproot your whole family and you know, go to maybe a completely different state and try to find a completely different job. So I have a lot of empathy for, um, for the communities that live and work at these mines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um uh, you mentioned the decline of coal mining, um, which is a good thing. Um, but how has the decline of coal impacted the, the practice of mountaintop mining? Has it, has it, slowed it down? Has it, has it kind of really cut back on this? Or, or what other impacts maybe is having from coal, mm-hmm. coal kind of uh, hopefully reaching its, its end?
1: Yeah, um, we're in a very interesting situation right now. And my job has changed a lot over the last few years and um, continues to change <laughs> uh, in some, some unknown ways. Um, when I first started this job, yeah, we're, our stated goal was to end mountaintop removal, specifically surface mining, um, because of all of the uh, the Im- negative impacts that it has. Now that that is more or less happening, um, there are a lot of consequences because of how quickly it's happening and the fact that that we society as a whole did not prepare for for it happening. Um, so. To be clear, surface mining is definitely still happening. Not to the extent that it was, um, but there was a new permit issued just this month that was a permit we were fighting in Tennessee, um, and we were unable to stop that permit. So companies are still moving forward, but at a lower, much lower level than they had previously. Hmm. Um, go ahead.
0: Are these are these state issued permits? I was going to ask who's allowing this to happen. <laughs>
1: Well, it's both. So usually to mine, well, always to surface mine, you need to get a surface mining permit. um, And those are regulated by um, the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement, which is a federal agency. But then typically, that federal agency has delegated mining programs to each of the states, if the states have chosen to do so. So so with the exception of Tennessee, the other, the other three central Appalachian states run their own mining agency. So the permit is issued through the state, but it also is based on a, a federal regulation.
0: Is that under uh, Department of the Interior or Army Corps of Engineers? or? Um,
1: it's uh, under in- Interior.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then they usually have to get um, Clean Water Act permits through the EPA. And if they construct valley fills, they have to get a fill permit from the Army Corps of Engineers.
0: Mm, yeah. I uh, I was at U.S. EPA in D.C. from like 2011 to 2017. I remember a lot of mining issues coming mm-hmm. up and EPA having to talk to the Army Corps and the states mm-hmm. and, and all that. Um, so... How has federal policy then impacted mountaintop mining? Or it basically facilitated it, started to make it easier, make it harder? What's what's going on there?
1: Um it it varies. Yeah. Uh I think the uh the biggest impact federal policy or legislation had on mountaintop removal was the passage of the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act back in 1977. Mm. That's what created the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement. Before that, there wasn't really federal regulation specific to surface mining. Um, so it was extremely helpful. It's uh, a primary part of what we rely on now to do our jobs and make sure Land and water and communities are protected, Um, but it was far from perfect. So, what we're one of the things that we're running into now is that the law, um, at least in part, was predicated on the idea that coal mining would continue and that a coal company would essentially always want new permits and always want to continue mining coal. So, if they um, committed a violation and they didn't deal with that violation, then the state or federal agency could step in and say, you know, you're doing a bad job. You you have these violations. We are ordering you to stop mining coal and we will refuse to issue any new permits to you until you fix the situation and do better. But now, a lot of these companies don't really want new permits and <laughs> they don't they don't really want to mine much coal. Um, but they have a lot of reclamation left to do. So as they rack up violations because they're stalling on reclamation, the agencies can issue violations, but a lot of times the companies kind of just don't care. Mm. They can just not pay their fines, and there's just not a lot the agencies can do.
0: They can just not pay their fines. That's unbelievable. Is that because, like, the state's and the federal agencies don't want to truly pursue those fines or or really take strong enforcement or legal action. That's that's cra- I mean, they're just kinda of letting them off, I guess. Well And I think before you mentioned also some mm-hmm. of these companies are in decline and they're and they're financially they just don't have the money even to do the restoration or to pay out this and all that. so they're just kinda of, that's it, we're bankrupt, we're out of here, or something like that.
1: Yep, exactly. So I wouldn't um I wouldn't blame it totally on the state agencies. Okay. Uh, the agencies have a lot of employees who want to do the right thing. And this problem has been a long time in the making. Um, they they probably should have seen this coming <laughs> and done a bit more in my personal opinion. Um, but it, it's not solely their fault um, because they can issue fines and they do uh, take companies to court. They usually end up... Um, Negotiating consent decrees like settlement mm-hmm. agreements, so they might have a schedule that they're paying fines um, over the, like over the course of a certain amount of time they might have a schedule for reclamation but if they if a company ignores that agreement there's not a whole lot else the agency can do except renegotiate that agreement mm-hmm. i mean the the agency with with very rare exceptions um the agency isn't going to go arrest the coal mining executive. Like that's not, you know, they don't have a, yeah. essentially a police force. Right. Um, so they're, they're running out of um, tools to compel the companies to comply. Yeah. And in the worst cases, yeah. In these bankruptcies, um, one of the bankruptcies that we're dealing with right now is a company called Black Jewel. Um, they've been in the news quite a lot. Um and they are more or less dissolving. Hmm. So if there is um a water issue on one of their permits and the state agency tries to call them up to get someone to meet an inspector at the mine, nobody's answering the phone.
0: Hmm. Wow. So what do you
1: what do That's you do? It.
0: Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. All right, well let's spend a little time on solutions. Um because mm-hmm. I'm very curious as to um, you know, what are the solutions for restoring these mountains and restoring these streams. Um, you know, I, I'm going to put up this picture that I think is of a restored mountaintop mining area. Um, and this is what is supposed to happen to these places. They're supposed to be... Mm. No? Is it the... Uh, it's like a nice little green fields, bushes, trees growing.
1: Let me make sure I know which one we're on. Oh, yeah. No, actually... Um, I know what that one is. Sorry. Uh, that's, it's okay. It is an abandoned mine land site, um, which is like, it's an important part of reclamation. Um, just to say a little bit more about what that photo is. Sure. AML abandoned mine lands that's a federal designation for any mines that were abandoned prior to the passage of the Surface Mining Act in 1977 so there is currently a federal fund to clean up these mines so they tend to be pretty small so what you're seeing in that photo is that the, a lot of that area has revegetated on its own but you can see a bit of a cliff wall mm-hmm. and that is an that's not natural it's an abandoned high wall that should have been backfilled mm and regraded. Okay. So we have a lot of sites like that that we um, have been dealing with for 40 years now and, and making progress on. Um, but now it's looking like on top of the existing pre-1977 sites, we may be about to see a lot of current mines, which are often much larger and often have worse problems. They may be about to be abandoned as well.
0: Hmm. And abandoned meaning the company walks away, no reclamation work, no restoration work happens. It's just one of these open tops of, of a mountain.
1: Yep, exactly. And the Surface Mining Act was supposed to deal with that, Uh, And it it did, in a sense, in that it required companies to um, get bonds that would cover the cost of reclamation. So most companies have bonds, but it's been up to the states to administer their bonding program, and they've done it in various ways. And they haven't always done a good job, Mm. and we have pushed states to improve bonding, Um, and some of them did that a little bit, but not well enough. So we've got a bunch of problems right now. One problem is companies that, um, didn't get large enough bonds. So the states didn't have adequate assessment for how large the bond should be to cover the true cost of reclamation. Mm. Um, another problem we have is that several of the states use what's called pool bonding, where each individual mine permit only needs a, to provide a portion of its reclamation cost, but then they also pay fees into a pool, like a state pool. So sort of like an insurance concept. And the idea there was that we wouldn't ever be in a situation where uh, really large companies are going bankrupt or multiple companies are going bankrupt at once. And so what we're finding is that these state pools are likely not large enough to cover the widespread abandonment that we're probably about to see mm, mm. um so we thought we dealt with this problem but we didn't <laughs> because <laughs> bonding is insufficient
0: well with all of these you know acres hundreds of thousands more of acres and all these mountaintops that are you know have been removed are these sites if the mining company isn't going to do the right thing uh, <laughs> it's costly, right? What, what has to happen, I guess, to properly reclaim one of these, these areas? What, what would be the ideal type of work to Mm -hmm. fix it the best you can?
1: Yeah. So, um, reclamation is possible. Uh, water remediation is the most challenging, Mm. um, and often the most expensive. So that is the one caveat of, you know, if you've contaminated a stream badly enough and the source of pollution is ongoing, um, that is the one thing that may need literally decades of active treatment. Um, So those are situations where that, in my opinion, that mining should not have been allowed to happen in the first place because it basically created um, an uncorrectable problem, um, at least in terms of not requiring active, uh, active treatment for a long time. But other than that, you can reforest mines. You can regrade them um, and uh, backfill the high walls and and put the land back into some sort of semi-natural-looking topography, Um, and you can replant native hardwood forests on them. But it's not easy, and it takes a lot of money. They need to make the ground stable enough so that the the land isn't um, collapsing or sliding um, afterwards. They need to make sure that they replace the topsoil and they need to make sure that mines are reforested with um, native species rather than getting overrun with invasives. Mm -hmm. What we typically see now is a lot of mines that have undergone a lot of compaction um, to get the land to be stable. Um, and they have not had great topsoil, um, substitutes put in place and they're getting overrun with non-native species. Um, we see like a lot of autumn olive coming in, a lot of kind of like Mediterranean type species that will grow on poor soil, um, in kind of hot open land.
0: Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, Let's go back. Uh, lastly, to the the people, right? And we talked about the challenge that people are in, where so much of their so much of their work and the local economy has depended on mining, mountaintop mining. Um, but now this is fading away. Um, how can people be given alternatives to working in mining? You know, how can local mm-hmm. economies in Appalachia kind of be restructured uh, to to shift away? From, from this kind of practice?
1: Well, one thing I think is really important is making sure that local communities have a say in um, economic development decisions made within their communities. Not just those decisions, but really anything, uh, any decisions. How, how is the... How is the town developing? Um, what kind of industries are coming in? What decisions are being made around education, healthcare, municipal water, other utilities, broadband, really everything? Um, because a lot of these communities were created by the coal industry. Um, and individual community members haven't ha- necessarily had uh, enough say in, the, in how, how their communities develop. So that's one thing um, I would really flag. The other is that we can hire miners to go back to work to do the reclamation that they already know how to do. Hmm. There is a ton of reclamation left, and usually it's miners doing that work, but it's really stalled out right now, and miners have been laid off. Um, but like with all things, uh, a big question is where the funding comes from.
0: Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, uh- Aaron, I'm glad we had uh, the, the opportunity to catch up for this conversation. Uh, like I said, it's a topic that's bothered me for a really long time, and I'm, I'm glad to find someone uh, to talk to about it and get this information. Um, but thank you so much for all of it, and um, I look to catching up in the future and, and hearing some success stories.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Thanks so much for having me. Waterloo, Waterloo,
0: Waterloo. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop.